Okay, uh, chapter eight. Let's jump right in. Guys, let me, let me just preface this quickly by saying, um, I think what we're about to study today, what we're about to look at, it's, it's gonna, this is gonna be a bit of a family meeting. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus or if you are aspiring to understand, know, obey, and experience a life under the lordship of Jesus, then, then you're in the family. You're, you're a brother, you're a sister in Christ. And if you're like, mm, not quite there yet, I'm here, but I'm figuring that out. Wonderful. This morning is going to be an opportunity for you to sort of eavesdrop in on a bit of a family meeting. Paul, in chapter 8 of this particular letter to the believers in Corinth, is, is laboring to explain to these wonderful people whom Paul clearly cares about how this Jesus stuff actually works out in real life. So it's a bit of a family talk. He's saying, guys, let me explain to you what the gospel, what this reality of who Jesus is, what he did for us on the cross, his death, his resurrection. Let me explain to you what this looks like lived out in a very, very practical manner. So this is kind of, this is family business time. If you're looking in, if you're, if you're wanting to understand, perhaps like the Corinthians, what it does look like to follow Jesus, I hope this is helpful for you. And let me, let me say this, um, and then we'll, we'll move on. My contention is that a lot of people who have rejected or simply decided to pass on Jesus or Christianity is often due to the fact that they have been presented with the caricature of the Christian life. In fact, you're rejecting not Jesus, but something that's been presented to you as a bit of like a faux Jesus. Not the actual Jesus, not the life of Jesus that the scriptures in fact present to us, but something slightly less something that we might put into the category of just religion or works or whatever you want to call it. So I hope that this morning, as we take a very close and practical look at what the life of Jesus looks like lived out in a very practical way, your perception of Jesus and what it means to follow him might be better informed because of our time here together this morning. Does that make sense? You with me? All right, chapter eight. Oh, part 11, go back. You already saw the title. Food, knowledge, freedom, and love. That's what we're talking about this morning. All right, chapter eight. Now concerning, this is the third time that Paul has used this phrase, now concerning. Again, this is a cue to remind us that Paul is actually referencing something that the Corinthians themselves have asked him about in the letter that they wrote to him. So he's, he's now addressing one of their concerns. Now concerning food offered to idols. Uh, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, close quote. This, quote unquote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Let's pause there. Food sacrificed to idols. Let's, let's sort of unpack that quickly. Or food offered to idols. Now, do we have idols today? What's an idol? What are you talking about? Do we have, of course we have idols. Do we sacrifice food to idols or do we use food to worship idols? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Do you? I don't. We don't use food to sacrifice or worship or make offerings to idols. We just worship food. I think that's kind of where we've gotten to. Okay, so we just, we just cut out the middleman. We just simply worship food. That's what, that's what we're doing. So different cultural nuance there. But he's saying in the context of worshiping idols, an idol, of course, is, it can be a thing. It can be an idea. It can be a philosophy. It can be a relationship. It can be a material item. It's anything, one, or, or something that you look to for your source of security, Comfort, meaning, hope, identity, that, that's an idol. And it can be anything whatsoever. And typically idols are, they're good things, as in they're not like pure evil. They're just things, created things, things in this world that will eventually pass away. But nevertheless, things that we look to to gain some sense of meaning and security. Um, we call it an idol because ultimately we know that God, our creator, is the source of true meaning and security. And if we're to experience life, lasting, whole, holistic life, then God says, look to me. Look to me. And when we don't do that, when we look to other things or other people, that's called idolatry. It's a very simple thing. We just don't use the word so much these days. And of course, the Corinthians, they would use food, uh, they would also use sex um, and other sort of rituals to offer uh, or make offerings to their idols as a form of worship. Then he says this, we know that all of us, quote, all of us possess knowledge. We'll come back to that in just a second. This, quote unquote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then he makes this statement, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul is making, once again, I mean, he's just banging on about this. We're like into chapter eight now. He's making the distinction between two types of knowledge. There is uh, intellectual knowledge, call it that. But then there is also relational knowledge knowledge. There is knowing things and there is being known by God. There is knowing stuff about him or people and then there is knowing someone in a way that goes beyond knowledge. It is a relational knowledge. So he's making this very important distinction for us once again. Intellectual knowledge typically leads to uh, arrogance. This is what he means by knowledge that puffs up, gives you a big head. It's called arrogance. Um, it says, I have more info, therefore I look down on you. This typically makes people mad, uh, defensive, and generally annoyed. 
But relational knowledge is what leads to love or vice versa. Love says, I have been blessed, therefore, how can I serve you? This typically makes people feel valued, respected, and it builds up. So these two types of knowledge, there is intellectual knowledge or simply collecting more data or information, and then there is love. There is being known by God. There is the relational knowledge. Knowledge is only valuable in so far as it reinforces the greater all-surpassing value of knowing and lovingly relating to others. So knowledge is valuable, but it's only valuable in so much as it reinforces the greater all-surpassing value of loving and relating to others in a way that reflects the heart of God. This, of course, is not to downgrade the importance of knowledge or truth, but to simply emphasize the point that purely abstract truth, knowledge devoid of relationship, is about just as helpful as an overinflated, disembodied brain on stilts. And can we all just agree that that's like super weird? Okay, we don't need that. The world doesn't need that. The world doesn't need bigger brains walking around with better answers. The world needs more love. Now, knowledge is good if it helps us to love God and others better. Knowledge merely for the sake of personal comfort or security or worse, gaining intellectual leverage over another isn't good for anyone. It's controlling, it's condescending. It's great if you want to build a bomb or control someone, but it has no place in the life of one who aspires to live out the way of Jesus. We're talking about relational knowledge. So, what exactly is this knowledge that he's talking about? Okay, so he's making the distinction between two types of knowledge. But when he says we all possess knowledge, what, did, what knowledge? What is he talking about? What, what are we all supposed to know here? Well, let's read on. Next slide, please. Verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, this is the knowledge, we know that, now he's quoting back to the Corinthians something that they've said. We know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, close quote, and that, quote, there is no God but one. We know that. We agree on that. Verse five. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. So what is this knowledge he's talking about? He's saying, look, we know that there are quote-unquote idols. We know that people will make idols out of all sorts of things, and that's a real thing. And I think we can agree on that. We all do that. We're all tempted to do that anyways. 
And we could perhaps even go so far as to say, and look, there, there's, these aren't just sort of like idols in the purely artificial sense. There are spiritual forces, entities at work behind these things as well. It's not just purely innocent. There are gods and lords, either gods that we've sort of set up to be personal gods. I don't know, what, what are you tempted to worship these days? Hmm? Phone? You worship your phone? Do you have a nice one? Yes, mine's not that nice. I don't know, yeah, your stuff. Is it a god? I guess it's a quote-unquote god. Is there, is there a spiritual force at work in the world we're living in that would compel one to, I don't know, have some kind of relationship with technology? Is there something, if there's something at work behind the scenes in our world that compels us to like act in, in incredibly destructive and addictive ways? Well, if you don't have to look too far in the Bible to say, yeah, mm-hmm, absolutely, we live in a spiritual world. And uh, there are quote-unquote gods and quote-unquote lords I, th- I think for us, the quote-unquote lords would probably be the, the people, the leaders, I, I don't know, the celebrities that we tend to idolize. Those would be the, the quote-unquote lords. But what Paul is saying is that, look, yeah, all that's good, all that's real, fine, whatever. But we know that there's actually truly only one God. And he made heaven and earth. And there's only one Lord, and his name's Jesus the God-man who entered into creation to suffer and die and to overcome sin and death, who now offers us new life. We know this. We know this. Let's keep going. He goes on to say in verse 7, however... Not all possess this knowledge. So he's saying, look, we all know this, but actually not everyone does know this. Okay, there's some people who, yeah, they're, they're not quite there. For them, it's these lowercase gods and lowercase lords are still very real and a part of, of, of their thinking and their, their everyday life. So he said, however, not all of this possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, because of past life experiences. They don't quite get yet that, look, Jesus is the Lord. Okay, there is only actually one God, and these quote-unquote idols and lords, like, forget about it. They're in comparison. They're nothing. They're irrelevant. They're meaningless. They're without power, zero authority. But he's saying not everyone's quite gotten that figured out yet. Because some, through former association with idols, eat food, as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He says in verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours, this, this knowledge that you have, 
does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother or the sister for whom, you, for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. In other words, when you sin against the individual brother or sister in Christ, you're, you're actually sinning against the body of Christ, damaging the family. This, this is what Paul meant by knowing as one ought. He says some through former association with idols may not be able to, to stomach this kind of knowledge. You might have this profound revelation that look, I, I don't care what you sacrifice this hamburger to. I know there's only one God, so my conscience is, is good. I'm gonna eat it, I'm gonna enjoy it, I'm not phased by this so-called idol that it's been sacrificed to. And that's a revelation. That's, that's this knowledge that he's talking about. He said, but some, they're not quite there. They don't quite get it. And so if they see you eating food that they know has been sacrificed to an idol, that could totally freak them out. They might think to themselves, look, what are you doing? I thought, I thought we were followers of Jesus. I thought he was Lord. I thought there was only one God, and yet you're in a temple eating food that's been sacrificed to an idol, another God. What does, that, what does that mean? What are the implications? And the one who's weak in their conscience, the one who's not quite figured out this knowledge, they're made to stumble. It says that they're destroyed because they don't, they don't know how to process this, this freedom that you're enjoying knowing that there's no God in comparison to the one true God. Are you guys with me so far? This is, this is incredibly nuanced. This is teaching us how to treat each other in the family of God. This is really, really important. This is what Paul meant by knowing as one ought because quote-unquote knowledge is only valuable insofar as it reinforces the greater all-surpassing value of knowing and lovingly relating to others. This is when value, or this is when knowledge is valuable. If the knowledge which entitles you to enjoy a liberty causes another, whether they're right or wrong, whether they're, they're, they're sort of misunderstanding the gospel, whether they've not yet gotten this revelation that you've got, to use your liberty in a way that causes another to stumble or to sin, to defile their own conscience, you and your knowledge have just become a bull in a spiritual china shop. You're being a jerk. You're being insensitive, selfish, and you're not thinking about the other. Your knowledge has just become a blunt instrument. It's become a weapon and you're destroying the people around you. You have forgotten love. What does Paul mean by 
stumbling. He uses this phrase. He says, but if you cause, um, if you cause your brother to stumble, are you not destroying him? Are you not sinning against Christ? What does he mean by stumble? Yeah, fall over, trip up, sin. Now, he says in verse 10 that the, the most obvious way that your brother or sister might stumble is that they'll see you eating food or meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, and they'll conclude like, oh, okay, so I guess we got multiple gods going on. So you're worshiping this god, and of course, you know, Jesus is still cool, and so therefore, let's, great, I'm with you. Let's go eat meat that's been used to worship demons. Awesome. And they'll do that, and then they'll go home, and they'll think, what have I done? What have I done? I've sinned. I've, I've betrayed my allegiance to Christ. And so you, by using your liberty, because of the knowledge you have, have actually caused someone else to sin in their hearts. Because in, in, in their minds, they're like, I've actually participated in idol worship. Even though in reality they, they, they haven't, but in their minds they have, and therefore their consciences are defiled. So that, that's the most obvious way you might cause one to stumble. Probably the less obvious way, but arguably even more destructive way that you would cause one to stumble is, is through causing them to be um, afraid of sinning. Cause it fear of losing control. Let me put it this way. If, if the one, if you cause your brother to stumble by simply encouraging them to go on and like participate in false idol worship, call that license to sin. Okay, the, or the word that the scriptures use is licentiousness. It's basically saying like, you know what? The Holy Spirit might be convicting you now to not do this because you know in your heart of hearts that Jesus is Lord and you really shouldn't be worshiping some old idol that you used to have former association with. And the Holy Spirit's like, don't do it. But you see your brother or sister doing it, so you're like, eh, let me just sort of like not listen to the Spirit of God that's now convicting me and worship this idol, defiles your conscience. So that's license to sin. The other version of that is what I'd call legalism. So license versus legalism. Legalism is what happens when you see a brother, when you perceive a brother or sister to be sinning and it freaks you out. You're like, oh, like my goodness, like they're worshiping an idol. I don't want to do that. I'm terrified that like everyone else is going to start doing it. So let me begin to put up safeguards for myself. Let me begin to perhaps control the situation. And for fear that someone else might see my brother or sister eating in a temple, food that's been sacrificed to an idol, let me make sure that I'm controlling them as well. Let's make sure that we ostracize that person so that we can keep sin out of the house of God. That's called legalism. License is ignoring the Holy Spirit Legalism is trying to be the Holy Spirit. You get that? I don't know which one's worse. 
I think the latter is much more subtle and can appear to be godly when in fact it's, it's coming from a, out of a place of fear. A fear that the Holy Spirit can't convict my brother or sister of sin and therefore I need to step in and attempt to control their behavior. Now, at this point, I want to point out something that to me is incredibly fascinating and super helpful. Let me digress for a minute. Okay, so put, put a little bookmark right there. We're going to digress. Acts chapter 15. Do you guys, if you've read Acts, do you remember the council that was convened in Jerusalem around, I think they say it was around 50 AD. Paul, who wrote this letter to Corinthians, and Barnabas, apparently they were in Antioch, and this big debate broke out. Um, it specifically had to do with circumcision, and we talked about that. The Gentiles coming into the family of God, did they have to be circumcised? And Paul's arguing like, no, look, circumcision is and always was a matter of the heart. If they want to come to the family, the new, the new mark of family membership is no longer genital circumcision, it's heart circumcision. It's faith, it's a work of the spirit. So they're debating. And it says it was, it was quite a, a full on, it was a violent debate. And so finally, the church in Antioch tells Paul and Barnabas, look, go to Jerusalem, Go to the apostles, go to Peter, James, and the whole gang, and, and get them to weigh on this. So in Acts 15, they, they hold a council in Jerusalem. And the conclusion is, no, the Gentile believers, the Greeks, do not have to get circumcised. Okay, we know this. We know this. But this is what they say. This is going to trip you up. Acts chapter 15, verse 29, verse 28. This was the conclusion of their council. For it had seemed, they wrote a letter, they, they, they told Paul and Barnabas, go back to Antioch, tell everyone. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these you will do well. Farewell. That was the conclusion of the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. Paul was there. Now, that would have been around 50 AD. The church in Corinth was planted about five years later. So the letter would have been widely circulated. And yet, now Paul is saying, look, if you want to eat food, sacrifice to idols, fine, whatever. Okay, we all know that, in fact, there is truly only one God. And if you have this knowledge, awesome, more power to you. Just make sure you're not using this knowledge, you're not using this liberty in a way that's going to violate the conscience of your brother or sister, because that would be knowledge devoid of love, which is what we call a weapon. 
The reason why I wanted to highlight this now, this sets a precedent for how we read scripture. Now I wanted to put it in here on the tail end of my point about legalism because we have the, the forever tendency, the propensity to keep veering back towards legalism. It's just what we do. The gospel is somehow like too good. It's just this idea that God forgives and gives his grace and gave his only son as some sort of free gift and then doesn't like hold us in debt as if there was like a million strings attached. It's just like, it's like mind boggling for us. And we think, but surely there, there has to be conditions to this gift. And so we wanna sort of lean back towards these legalistic tendencies. At the Jerusalem Council, the decision is no. The law of circumcision is no longer in place. It was always about the work of the spirit. But here's what we want you to do. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Don't drink blood. Don't eat meat that's been strangled. Abstain from sexual immorality. All of that is, is code speak for stop worshiping demons. That's, that's what he's saying. All of those activities is, is to do with idol worship. So if you want to follow Jesus, awesome, but you're going to have to say no to all of the other idols that you use to look to for meaning and security in your life. And plus, there are demons that work behind all of those things. So you can't follow Jesus and be in cahoots with these other false, quote-unquote, gods. Now, question. Did the Jerusalem council decide, no, you don't need to adhere to the law of circumcision, but we're going to establish a new law now. Forget that rule. We're going to set up a new rule. Is that, is that what they're doing? No, no, not at all. What they're doing is saying, we are no longer bound to the law. The law has been fulfilled by Christ so that we have now been set free to live in the new way, the way of the spirit, which is how Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans. So he doesn't nullify one law to simply establish a new one. That would be to go back to legalism once again. Here's my point, guys. As we're reading throughout the second half of 1 Corinthians, there's gonna be other things that come up that Paul's gonna say, look, here's my requirement. Here's my rule. Here's what I want you to do. But we mustn't make the mistake of interpreting that as like, oh, okay, so we've got new rules now. We've got new laws. We don't have to get circumcised anymore, praise the Lord. But we've got new rules now. And that is to undermine grace. We always have, this is called a hermeneutic of grace. This is called putting in a lens through which we view everything else through. Now, the mistake that the Corinthians were making and making and making and making, they kept thinking, just tell us the rules. Tell us, we want doctrinal knowledge so that we can become spiritually superior as we work our way up the ladder. And Paul's like, no, 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 you're, you're, you're missing it. You're, you're, 
you're losing the plot. It was never about simply gaining more knowledge or establishing new rules. It was about coming into a loving relationship with your heavenly father through Messiah, Jesus. That's the knowledge that sets you free. That's the truth that transforms you into a son or a daughter of God. So, very important digression, because we go on, we need to realize like, okay, hang on a second. Are these new rules for us? Or is Paul applying principles of love and freedom to teach God's people, uh, well, here's some very practical guidelines for you to adhere to so that you can live out this knowledge as you ought. Let me ask you this question. What would be our equivalent today of meat sacrificed to idols? Brilliant. Good one, Nick. Yeah, that was right at the top of my list, alcohol. Remember, things that one might formerly associate with idolatry. Things that you might enjoy as a freedom in Christ that a brother or sister might look at and go, oh, like, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Okay, like, I don't, you are confusing me. Like, you are going to make me stumble. Either I'm going to join you in drinking in a way that defiles my conscience, or I'm gonna become so terrified of sinning the way I'm perceiving you to sin that I'm gonna become a raving legalist. And, and I'm just going to, anyone who, around me who drinks is in sin. Either way, I stumble. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> what else? Alcohol. Tobacco, smoking. What's that, Jule? Say it again. Oh, yeah, music. Great example. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was like, I was so stoked on Jesus. I'd been set free, and somehow I got it in my head, like, I have to throw away all of my secular CDs. <laughs> Which left me with, like, two, like, really rubbish Christian-like CDs. So I threw them all away. Yeah, I did that. And some of you may have done that. Some of you may have done that, and it was like exactly what you needed to do because the Holy Spirit was, was convicting you to do that because of your former association, because of what that meant to you. Yeah, great example. What else? Video games. Video games. Mm -hmm. Who said that? Doesn't matter. <laughs> mm -hmm. Social media, for sure. Money, yes, I didn't think of that one. Yeah, very good. How about, um, how about things related to dating? Come on. Any, anyone ever read that book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye? Have you not heard of that book? It's a real book. I'm not, like, I, don't, I don't really have much of an opinion about it. Yeah, yeah, well, I am kind of old, Gabe. Yeah, so there you go. Um, 
I, I kissed stating goodbye. I did that actually. Because of my former association with dating and, and what that, I mean, talk about idol. That was girls, the pursuit of girls, sex, all of that. That was like my number one idol. Okay, that is where I was attempting to find meaning, happiness, joy, etc., in my life. It was, it was whatever dating relationship I was in. And if I was getting some action, then I just, my idol was loving me. And uh, because of that, when Jesus rescued me, I was like, I'm, I'm done. Like, I've been, I have been set free. And I stopped, I just full on stopped dating. I went hardcore celibate um, for, for eight years. Didn't even go on a date. I was just like, it was, it was the, the association was too strong for me. Um, I probably became a bit of a legalist about it. Kind of had this mindset that like, oh, you know, this is, if you date, you're like clearly not serious about Jesus. <laughs> to- total legalism. But it was what I needed. It was what I needed. What about kissing? I remember um, uh, a couple, Shirley and I, we did uh, premarital counseling for them. Uh, this was some friends of ours back in London, and I ended up marrying them, D-Ray. And um, what, was, what was her name again? R- Ruth, yeah, sorry. D-Ray and Ruth. Uh, I remember getting an email from Dre, and uh, he was really upset, and he said, hey, want some advice? Should I kiss Ruth? Like, should we make out and whatnot? And I, I told him, I said, read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and, and we'll talk about that. For him, having a little smooch here and there with his girlfriend wasn't a big deal. Didn't, didn't feel convicted, didn't defile his conscience. For his fiance, it was like, oh, this is killing me. Because through former association, because of what, what kissing was to her, just kissing, because of what kissing was to her in past relationships, every time they'd have a little sesh at the end of their date, it defiled her conscience. It defiled her conscience. He was causing her to stumble. It was destroying her. And I said, here's the principle. Okay, there is no rule about whether or not you can kiss your girlfriend. No rule. Okay, now there are, there are some rules. <laughs> there are lines, for sure. I guess that'll, that'll be another sermon. I'm making a particular point this time. But I say, hey, if because of Ruth's former association, you're causing her, you're causing her conscience to be defiled, love her well and just stop. Don't do it. Are you free to do it? Of course. Are you allowing her convictions to somehow override your freedom? You could argue that. Or you could just say, you're surrendering your sense of entitlement so as to better love your future wife. That's 1 Corinthians 8. That's food sacrificed to idols. I remember Shirley and I, when we were uh, dating and engaged, we, we would smooch. <laughs> and through former association with idols, it was a problem. It was a problem. 
It, it caused all sorts of chaos and confusion and insecurity and at times defiled consciences in our relationship. It was, it was tough. I remember one time uh, one of the, the leaders in the church we were part of, he was, he was like an associate pastor, he called a meeting with Shirley and I. I remember we sat, we were like parked under a bridge in his car downtown London and he said, hey, we need to have a talk, I wanna to talk to you, he was very concerned. And he said, you know, uh, it's, it's been brought to my attention that Shirley has been spending the night at your, your flat every once in a while, a couple times apparently. And I'm like, yeah. I said, but you know, like, like, yes, that's true. She sleeps in the lounge. We're not sharing a bed. It's like we're not, we're not crossing lines. So, yeah, so what's your problem? Like, this is personal. And he was like, well, that's, that's great. And I'm not trying to, like, judge you or anything like that. But, you know, one of your flatmates, so I lived with, it was two guys and two girls. The four of us shared a flat. One of your flatmates basically just, she kind of confided, and I don't know if it was like him or his wife, and she's just really struggling. It's, it's clearly weighing on her. She, she looks up to you guys as leaders in the church, and Shirley's like spending the night, and I don't, you know, I don't know if she isn't sure whether or not you guys are fooling around or what's going on, but it's just, it's just weighing on her. And I remember having to fight that feeling of like, how dare you, this is super personal, like you have no, you know, no right to talk about this with me. But then the part of me feeling like, but if this is causing my little sister in Christ, one of the girls that I was sharing a flat with, if this is like, like defiling her conscience, wouldn't it be most loving of us to simply say, okay, great, wonderful. We can, we just, we'll just stop that. We're happy to give up that right happy to, to give up that, that freedom, that sense of entitlement, if it's, gonna, if it's gonna bless my little sister in Christ. We had to really talk through that and wrestle with that. And so we decided, you remember that? Embrace the night buses? Yeah, night buses, yes. Yeah, crazy. Night buses. I, of course, would be the one to take the night buses. <laughs> um, like three hours driving across London. Some weirdos out in the wee hours of the night. Oh, here's one, here's one, then we'll, then we'll we gotta wrap up. Entertainment, R-rated movies. How about that one? Ooh, yes. <laughs> Through former association with pornography, I do not do nudity in films. I don't do it. I can't do it. I won't. It defiles my conscience. It's not loving towards my wife, who I know doesn't, is not down with that at all. Um, I remember having a friend, uh, a German buddy. Different culture, those Germans. <laughs> I remember he would tell me about like some R-rated movie that he watched, and I'm like, oh, I know about that movie. I turned that movie off because of like, like, like female, like frontal nudity. And it was like not a big deal to him. He's like, oh, like, what? I don't get why you're so like, you know, I don't know. Like, what is the big deal? And I remember, it's like, hmm, they're, they're. now it could be that he was just in sin, that, that's possible. But I think it was also something to do with his culture. It, it, had, it did not affect his conscience at all. And so I had, to, I had to basically just let him have that. There are matters of conscience. The principle is that we lay down our freedoms 
We use our knowledge, not for personal security or fulfillment, but to serve and better love others. God, each other, and creation itself. Let's read our last verse. There it is. Therefore, here's the conclusion. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. <laughs> you know, I can't help but think. Another example of, of eating meat sacrifice styles in our sort of modern culture is, is eating meat. Some people have like moral convictions to do with like abstaining from meat. Anyway, side thought. If me eating meat offends you on some sort of like moral level and defiles your conscience, I, I guess I just won't eat meat around you. <laughs> because in the family of God, greater depth of knowledge equals greater depth of compassion and responsibility for others. For those who perhaps don't know as much as you, who are still a bit weak or infantile in their spiritual walk. This is the, this is the essence of the gospel. What, where is Paul getting this? Where is he getting this? This is the essence of the gospel. God, who owed us nothing, entered into creation as a man and gave us everything. He laid down his rights. He had every right. He was justified in judging the world. All of us with backed turned to our creator have rebelled against God. We've used our quote unquote freedom to serve self, to serve humanity without any thought about our heavenly father. And yet while we were still sinners, while we, while we were his enemies, God became one of us, owing us nothing, giving us everything. He set the precedent for love. This is the knowledge that builds up. Amen.